Hello and welcome to Helpline in Focus. This is where we take the time to explore parenting topics in greater depth. And I'm talking about deep dives into challenges like fussy eaters, non-sleepers, tantrum throwers, which is what we'll be possibly looking at today. Each Thursday, normally at 12pm, but today at 1pm, Australian Eastern Standard Time, we'll invite one expert from Babyology's Parent School to join us live on Facebook. You'll be able to ask your own questions either live or through our Facebook helpline group. You can see the links below this video uh, or in the notes of the podcast if that's how you're listening. And then the chat will be posted the or podcasted the following Saturday. And today we're talking about discipline for toddlers with early childhood behavior expert Stephanie Wicker. Hey, Steph, how are you? Hi, Siobhan. Doing well. How are you? Good. I think this is probably a topic many people are very curious about. I know that uh, for myself, when my kids became toddlers, it was uh, it was kind of an alien concept because up until that point, you really can't do much to influence your child's behaviour. And I would argue, possibly, it's very hard to influence a toddler's behaviour. Would that be correct? Oh, yes. I think that today is going to have a lot of truth bombs for a lot of parents, because the reality is your toddler is going to do what your toddler wants to do. Uh how their brains work. (laughs) Um, And that can be really difficult for us because we want them to do what we want them to do. Um, But that's just not how it works. And yeah, that can make it really difficult. So this will be a really fun day, I think. A lot of questions coming our way, I imagine. So what Stephanie is great at doing is um, offering strategies. So while we don't want to, we don't want people to get too disappointed too soon. (laughs) There's a level of acceptance that's going to come <laughs> into this, but uh, Stephanie's really great at providing strategies. And also um, I find Stephanie just being able to understand where my child is at actually takes away 80% of the frustration. Yes. yes. So let's get cracking and answer some questions. This first one comes from Susan in Brisbane. She says, my 16-month-old has, for the last few months, been hitting and pinching us. It's not out of anger, more out of curiosity or looking for a reaction, I think. But telling her no, that hurts, just seems to make her want to do it more. I've chatted to daycare who said she never does it to the other kids, so it's just myself and my husband who are the lucky recipients. Lucky. (laughs) Woohoo! What can I do to discourage this? Uh, Okay, this is such a good start. Um, I think that this just sums up toddlerhood, doesn't it? So they get curious about something, they test it out. And man, oh man, that felt good. That worked, whatever it was, (laughs) whatever that need was got met, and they stick with it. And the brain sticks to what feels good to whatever feels like, well, that was the quickest, easiest way to get this need met, whatever it is. I want a drink, pinch mom, I get a drink. You know, I I want mommy's eye contact, I pinch her and she's now looking at me and explaining things to me. And this feels so warm and fuzzy. I'm gonna do that again. (laughs) So it's not even about our response. It's, you know, it sounds great that mom is, you know, oh, that really hurts mommy, please don't do that. The truth is, is that toddlers, you know, at this stage, in their language development, especially like there's a lot of things going on, but even just their receptive language, their ability to understand what we're saying and what we mean by it still very limited. So our explanations, while they come from a good place, a lot of the times those don't stick anyway, (laughs) you know? So, so that's the first big thing is actually 
a better way to communicate with your child is to model a replacement. And the way that we do this successfully is by really learning to anticipate the challenge before it happens and knowing what it looks like. So for example, if your child is struggling with pinching, then is it at bedtime when we're reading stories that they're pinching? Is it when you're doing the dishes? Is it when you've been on a conference call and they've been playing by themselves for a little while and they run into the room to check in on you and then they pinch you? Like, what is the scenario um, that most likely will lead to the pinching? Because as soon as you can recognize what it looks like for your child and their perspective, sometimes we can identify what the need is and then we can help with a replacement. I was working with a family who had something similar, but it was biting. So a little bit worse, I'd say, (laughs) you know, it's just so barbaric, isn't it? Um, But uh, every time dad came home, his son in excitement, not anger or frustration, he was genuinely overwhelmed with excitement to see dad. He would race up to him and like bite his leg. (laughs) And it was like, this really hurts. Don't do that. And unfortunately, it made it very difficult for the father to stay connected and close to his son because he's like, that hurts me. And then we become defensive, you know what I mean? And and we're we're in pain and it's hard to stay connected to someone who's fighting you or hurting you. Um, So one of the things that we did was we recognized that it was come home time, that it was the most often, which means that's where we should introduce a really solid strategy to basically interrupt that pattern that has been created, that that routine um, that exists for your child. Um, So one of the simple replacements was a high five. So as soon as he was running up to his dad, rather than waiting for the bite to happen, we would throw in a quick high five. Oh, it's so good to see you. Here's a high five. And if you find that that's not enough, then you can continue to interrupt that pattern in the brain by getting them thinking, can I get a high one? Can I get a high thumb? Okay, now you pick them up and now we have our cuddles. So a lot of the times it's anticipating by recognizing the scenario it most likely will happen in and then offering that quick replacement that interrupts the pattern and gets them thinking about something else while still meeting that need for connection and all that other good stuff that comes with it. So, yeah, good luck, Susan. (laughs) The next question comes from Frances in Brisbane. She says, we've got two and a half year old twins twins who couldn't be more different behavior wise one is quite shy and needs a push to be social with other kids at the park while the other one is very extroverted and can be demanding tantrums etc we have a time a timeout step where they have to sit when they've done something challenging not sharing hitting etc where we make them sit for two minutes max this works on one twin the shyer one but not the extrovert who simply gets back up and runs to wherever the rest of us are. My issue is how do I create consistent consequences when one twin doesn't seem to respond? Okay, so we got there pretty quickly. You know how a few minutes ago I was like, toddlers do what they want to do? Um, We're there. (laughs) So um, that's just the reality of it. So whether whether one twin is sitting on the step or one twin is running away, the one sitting on the step, he's sitting there because he wants to sit on the step. The other one's running away because he wants to run away. And that's that's the reality that we have to accept when we're raising toddlers is they're going to do what they want to do. And while that makes it very challenging for us, it's actually really beneficial for their brain work. And the fact that children are so focused on what they want is actually what gives them the tools to research and to problem solve and to absorb information that we might miss. So All that being said, (laughs) 
what that means is that as far as consequences go, those are with the expectation that children are able to know better and do better. When in actuality, toddlers are going to struggle with that, right? They are going to struggle with knowing, well, what should I have done? Someone took my toy. How should I have responded? And I don't have the control to make that decision when I'm emotional anyway. So that's why a lot of the times I actually tend to think rather than thinking what consequences can we use as a reaction to the behavior, what about how do we navigate these situations a little bit smoother so our kids are more successful? So we don't have to rely on the consequence in the first place, which a lot of the times are not going to sink in until children are five years old and older anyway. All right. So again, I know that's a bit painful to hear (laughs) because the easier thing is reacting and just sticking them in timeout. As soon as we put them on the step, put them in the red chair, then things become calmer again. You know, we don't have to worry about someone getting hurt. Everyone's safe again. And it feels good for us. So we become reliant on that step, just like the kids become reliant on us. So what I would encourage you to do is to better understand where the hitting is coming from, uh, when the sharing situations, when do those arise and how can we practice them so they're more successful? And there is like so many different ways that we can do this, but I do need a lot more information, which might come with further questions. Mm. So I would encourage parents to understand just a little bit is that our toddlers are not going to understand the consequences and they're certainly not going to be able to take that information into an emotional situation that requires impulse control because they don't have it. Their prefrontal cortex is not developed far enough yet for them to make better decisions. So And and on that that idea about where their brain's at, Stephanie, I didn't think that two and a half year olds had the capacity to share. So should we even be expecting that behavior? I mean, you, you can expect them not to hit, right? I mean, they might hit and that's a behavior that we can try, we need to try and intervene with. But when it comes to sharing, I mean, my seven-year-old can't share. And I, I would expect more of him now than I did when he was two and a half. I mean, is that something that we need to realize that kids just, when are they ready to share? I am so glad you are asking this question. Um, There's a reason that children struggle with sharing, and that's because it's simply not functional. If you think about what sharing is and how the brain works, you'll see that sharing doesn't really play a big role. There is not a lot of benefit for the brain to share. That's just the reality of it. Um, I'm 37 years old and I don't share my car with my neighbor. I don't (laughs) share my clothes with strangers. Um, And if someone told me to share, I'd be like, I don't know about that. Um, I think that there's a big difference between asking or almost forcing children to share versus expecting children to have a generous spirit. Um, I think generosity is intrinsic. It comes from within. You can't force it. <laughs> you know, you can't tell someone to be generous, either they are or they're not. Um, and, and sharing comes from a place of generosity. So no, you're absolutely right. So children under like, I would say probably like under eight or nine, they just don't have the ability to understand, to see the benefit for them. Therefore their brain doesn't stick to it. The brain sticks to things that feel good. It sticks to things that make sense. This got my need met. I'm going to hold on to that. Sharing doesn't fall into that category, but there are ways to introduce sharing in a fun way where children actually want to do it. And that's usually like game-based. I would make it something fun and playful to practice those skill sets, but I would never place them as 
this is our expectation because you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> yes. And I love that idea also of thinking about how you feel about sharing because mm. sometimes the things that we expect of our children, we don't do ourselves. So mm. how can we expect a small human to do it if we don't? That's it. Yeah. Uh, this next question comes from Savine in Townsville. I've just had the dreaded call from daycare that my son, too, who's two years old, bit another child hard. He's also hit kids in the past. We never smack or punish him physically at all. So I am so upset with this, this behavior and where it's come from. How do I stop it? Okay. She's right. This is the dreaded phone call, isn't it? I, I think I, I mentioned this just before. I was like, at least he's not biting. And here now we're like, oh no, one's biting. <laughs> this, this is such a hard one. And, and I think the reason it's so hard is because we worry that it reflects on us. Like even, even the parent asking the question made it very clear. We don't use physical punishment at home. And it's like, you don't have to like, they're not connected. You know what I mean? Like I would never think that anyway. Um, but, but we do, I think that's just human nature is we think that it's something we're doing wrong where biting is children navigating the world around them. It's, it's one of their many ways of learning what works and what doesn't. And that's why biting sticks. What often happens is it starts out as, is this going to work? It did. It totally worked. That little hand was coming for my toy. And as soon as I bit that hand, guess what? It stopped coming for that toy. <laughs> and I am all by myself. And I get this toy all to myself because that child ran away to the teacher. So biting works. And that can be a harsh thing to accept. But that's the truth of it. And that's why kids are so drawn to it. And that's why it sticks is because it works. And I think that if we, I think the key here is trying to introduce replacement skills, but remembering that competing with something that works so efficiently is going to be really difficult, which means we need to be able to anticipate it. So what are situations in which a child is more likely to bite? Is it in a classroom with a whole bunch of kids? That would make sense to me. Competition just went up. So it makes sense that a child would struggle to navigate those social interactions and you might see some biting happening. Um, and what are some other areas that we might see a child biting on the playground when someone won't move, someone won't get out of their way to get on the slide? Well, I bit them and they moved just like that. <laughs> I'm going to do that again. So once we recognize these situations, you'll notice I'll be saying this a lot with toddlers is we have to learn to anticipate these types of challenges, these types of behaviors because they're age appropriate and that's how their brain works. But once we do that, we can actually step in with some guidance. So when you see that little hand reaching for his toy and you know that the child bearing the toy, that he's a bit of a biter, let's give him a quick prompt. You know, let's say, oh, that's mine. Say, stop. You know, you can give him sign language, you know, stop, that's mine. Um, usually by giving them that empowerment, that resource that they can draw on saying, stop, that's mine. It feels really good for a toddler to be able to say no to someone, by the way. <laughs> so that's a really good replacement is no. And he can say that to the other child. And now he's advocating for himself. It's not going to work every time. We have to be vigilant. We have to practice. It really is about building those skill sets and gently, gradually replacing the biting that works so effectively. That replacement has to be just as effective. So it, it can be a tricky one, but there are definitely solutions. Anticipate it ahead of time. Try to set him up for success by being nearby when you know that they're in situations that might lead them to bite and then have a replacement ready and available 
and then follow through and show them that that was really effective. So if he says, no, it's mine. We want to make sure that we honor that. Yes, that's right. Awesome talking. Okay. See you later. And just guide the friend away. <laughs> yes, see you later. Go have fun and just show him that's how you can be alone with your toy. So really reinforce the effort that he is putting into it rather than being like great talking, but now you need to share <laughs> because that missing out will defeat the purpose. So yeah. Yeah, that is tough, isn't it? Behavior, changing behavior. This next question comes from Beck in Melbourne. Here we go. (laughs) Some more sharing. Sharing is a constant bugbear in our house. Our three-year-old is a terrible sharer. He is an only child, although has been nannied with another child his age. But when it comes to another kid taking one of his toys or having another toy he wants to play with, he just goes ballistic. Please help. It's so embarrassing and I really don't know what to do. Oh, Beck, I feel you. <laughs> That's literally every parent, <laughs> literally everybody. Um, okay, well, I have good news. Um, there are ways that we can help children navigate sharing because it is something that our society has come to expect. Um, you know, at preschool, we expect children to be able to share. On the playground, we expect children to be able to share, um, which is in a lot of ways a very unrealistic expectation. Um, but if we go into it from a different perspective. So let me put it this way. The brain hold on, holds on to what feels good, right? So if it feels good for your child to share, then chances are better that they're more likely to actually do it successfully. But if it doesn't feel good, if it's always around, you have to share. Otherwise you are going to be punished. You're, you're going to miss out. Um, then the brain is actually going to avoid that. Like, I, I don't want to hold on to that. That doesn't feel good to me. Um, but if we can teach it in a way where it feels really fun, it feels like there's a benefit in it, then their brain is much more likely to hold on to it. And they're much more likely to actually use that skill set. but it takes a lot of practice. One of the ways that I introduced it with my families. And the reason I get excited talking about sharing is because this is the number one thing that I get feedback on. Like, you know, when, whenever parents are like, you've changed our lives. It is always the sharing blanket. Always. Okay. (laughs) So the sharing blanket is gold. It is so good. And it's very important that you go into it. I recommend as a family. So the parents are modeling it. Whereas if we're asking kids to just share with their brother or sister who are like, it's old news, but if they're sharing with mom and dad and their brother and sister, it's a lot more exciting. It's a lot more intriguing. And we find that it works a lot better. So I would introduce it as a family. So you just get a big old blanket and everyone brings something that they own to the blanket, including mom and dad. It might be your favorite pen from work or your favorite tie from a speaking event or you know whatever, something silly, something that the kids would never really have access to. Um, that can be fun. You just set a timer and you make it very clear that it's time to share. This is sharing and it's only who wants to play and you'll find they all want to play. <laughs> um, and, and everyone's at the table and we're doing turns sharing. And we literally pass around each of the items. Everyone has an item for one to two minutes and that's it. Okay. That was so much fun. Okay. See you guys later. Go wrap, you know, pack it up, pack it away and then introduce this a couple times a week. And what you'll find is like in no time, your kids will be asking to share. They'll be asking you, where's the sharing blanket, mommy? We want to play sharing. And it becomes just part of their normal everyday interactions. And we are creating patterns. We're creating routines. You know, we're creating behaviors that we want to see. And I think that's the key here is that we practice what we want to see. 
Kids get a lot of practice doing things that we don't want to see. Um, so if we can just be a bit more proactive and find opportunities that are engaging and fun, sharing is always a choice, you know, and that's the important thing about the sharing blanket is that they're choosing to engage in sharing. So when you have friends coming over, you can prime them and be like, do you guys want to get the sharing blanket out while your friends are over? Just so it's front of mind, you know, so they're thinking about it and, and they're getting that practice with other kids and other families and other, you know, interactions, which would be really important. I think the other thing that I want to mention about this is other than having the whole family involved, which I think is the key. The other thing that's also very important is children, they got to experience ownership in order to experience sharing. So if we are forcing them to share with their brothers and sisters, and then we're playing the sharing blanket, chances are good that their brain is going to go, I don't want to play that game. (laughs) Why would I want to play that game? So it is very important that children do experience the right to say, no, that's mine. And what we'll find is that when we show children respect at that kind of level, like, yeah, you got it, mate. You're right. It's yours. You do not have to share that with your brother or sister. They are much more likely to engage in the sharing game and to absorb that lesson that we want them to learn and then to demonstrate generosity with their friends. So it's, it can create something that is quite challenging for us and turn it into something that is really, really beautiful. Yeah, that I love that idea. It's so much fun. Um, <laughs> I was just trying to think, what would I share? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mine's always a pin. My example's always a pin. I have a birthday tradition of getting these really expensive pins. And our, our foster kids are obsessed with my pins because they can't, they're not allowed to use them. So they really <laughs> want to use them. So that's our thing. Okay, we're getting those pins out there. Most you know what I was thinking of? I was thinking of eyeshadow because my daughter's oh, always put makeup on. And then I thought, yeah, I'm not sure that my husband would want to play with that, but maybe, maybe you never know. <laughs> maybe he's just been waiting for that yeah, moment. That's it. Is it? <laughs> uh, here's a question from Tina in Perth. She says, Our three and a half year old seems to have gone from an agreeable, happy kid to a kid who throws tantrums at the slightest inconvenience. The last one was over Fruit Loops in the supermarket. He wanted the box and I didn't want to buy it. So he grabbed it and wouldn't let let it go. I ended up walking out of the supermarket with my face red with shame while he screamed and chased me. It was not my finest hour, but how do I deal with these epic explosions? Yeah, we've all been there. I feel like I'm saying that a lot. And it's true. All of these behaviors are literally parenting. (laughs) This is like every day. Um, Yeah. So we've all been there. Um, And this is a really tricky one because first off the age, right? So at three and a half, that's just old enough. So your child's language is expanding and they just, they sound like little adults, you know, they have opinions on things and they're just brilliant. Um, They remember random facts. And we tend to think that that means that they're emotionally developed as well. And, and often the truth is, is that they still have the same level of impulse control that, you know, that younger kids do. So while they have that beautiful language, they're still just as egocentric and just as impulsive um, as their, you know, toddlers. Um, So it, it makes it really difficult for us because we can have very unrealistic expectations and we think that they should be able to cope better than they actually do. Um, yeah, which can lead to tantrums in the store. Um, what I find is once you know that this is something that your child might be challenged with, right? Which is all kids, let's be honest. You go to a grocery store and everything's colorful. Everything is dripping in chocolate and you know, you want it all. 
So I get you, kid. Like I totally relate to this child, by the way. Um, so what we try to do is set them up for success. I, I always try to see things that way, like any type of outing, whether it's going to the zoo, going to the grocery store, you know, going to the shopping center, we always want to have a plan. So kids are more likely to be successful throughout the trip. And it might look different if you're at a restaurant and sitting down versus a grocery store and consistently walking through the aisles and being surrounded by temptation. Um, so one of the things that I love to do with our kids is have a shopping list and they're responsible for that list because it keeps them busy. It keeps their brain focused on something and they just tick things off as we go. Um, and I find that that by itself, it doesn't mean that they're not going to ask for things, but it means that they might be able to regulate slightly better because redirection is closer. It's more familiar. It's something that they were already doing anyway. So we make it fun. We make it playful. Everything with us is like a game. Like we're like, how do we make this as fun <laughs> as possible? Because we really want their brains to be active um, and part of you know the solution rather than feeling like everything is just heavy and being dragged out. And, you know, we're getting in trouble for everything all the time. Instead, we just try to focus on how can we make everything as positive as an experience as possible. So I think that going in with a plan is going to be your best friend. You know, um, when that doesn't work, because sometimes it won't, it's not perfect. Um, redirection is going to be your other best friend. So redirection is it, you know? So, um, I mean, sometimes, sometimes it's also just choosing what battle is worth fighting and when it's okay for them to have something. And you can even tell them ahead of time, like, I need your help. You need to help me pick red apples or green apples. I need you, you know, make them the hero, you know, they're the hero now. Right. And red apples are so sweet though. Oh, what do you think? You know, and they're like, Oh, the red ones are sweet. You know, <laughs> So, so we find ways to empower them, to make them feel like they are making a choice in what we buy. Um, but we do it in a way where, you know, we can still be mindful of what we're actually buying and what we're actually getting. So hopefully that's helpful. It's a lot to digest, but, but there's quite a few different things. And I think it all boils down to being able to anticipate that this is going to be challenging for them. It's over overwhelming. It's tempting. And the louder they get, the more we crumble because we are in a public setting. <laughs> you know? So it works. So bearing all those things in mind, I think anticipating the challenge, going in with the plan is going to be your best friend. And when that doesn't work, redirect, redirect, redirect all through empowerment. It's always about making them feel good about themselves. That will make a big difference. Mm. Uh, I think we've got time for one last question, Stephanie. Uh, this is from Mandy in Brisbane. She says, I am trying so hard to instill good manners in my three and a half year old and still saying please and thank you just will not happen. He will say it when prompted, but after that feels like an eternity of reminding him. Are there any other methods I can use to prompt these manners on their own? I want him to be a polite kid, but I feel without me there, he just grunts orders at people. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like my husband. <laughs> well, he's good when you're there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. With prompts, he's great. Um, no, and I, I get it. I, I completely understand. Like, we, we all want our kids to be respectful and polite and courteous. Um, and a lot of that, we think, is exhibited through manners through saying please and thank you. But this goes back to what we were talking about with sharing, with consequences, like all of these things that we think children should be able to do or understand when in actuality, I think that manners, it means absolutely nothing to kids. 
I said it. Means nothing, yes. you know, because uh, there's there's no benefit. There's no benefit for them. So their brain, again, their brain doesn't stick to it. Their brain doesn't absorb it. It doesn't become a habit all by itself, um, because they don't understand. You might as well say something like, "Comment on the weather whenever someone gives you a gift." You know, you want something, you need to comment on the weather. For them, they don't make a connection. They're just like, "Why would I do that?" Um, so, so because there's no clear understanding for them and there's no clear benefit for them, it doesn't meet a need, um, then yeah, it slips and their brain is not going to stick on to that for quite a while, to be honest. But what we can do is modeling is great. So rather than prompting and telling him to say please and thank you, you can simply model it for him. That usually is more than enough. I think modeling is way more effective than a consequence would ever be. Um, so I highly recommend that. Um, and then the other thing is if it's really, really important to you, um, for us, I don't really worry about it too much to be honest, but for some families, it's very important that their children say certain words to sound respectful. Um, and if that's the case, then you can simply kind of prompt them in a way where you're not saying, say thank you, because it becomes a crutch and they become reliant on you being there to say that, um, make them come up with it themselves. So for example, if they ask you for a drink, then you might just hold on to the drink and go, okay, what should you say? Okay, oh, please, okay, there you go. Um, so by simply asking that question, you're allowing the manners, <laughs> you're allowing the solution, the answer to your question to arise in their brain. And that gets them the practice of thinking it for themselves and it becomes more intrinsic. Again, that is just creating routine. That's just creating rote words. I don't think that manners are really gonna be absorbed and understood until much later in their development. But if it's important, there are ways to teach it. Yeah, and when they're older, you just say, Parents really like kids with good manners. So if you want to have lots of play dates, <laughs> that's it. Be polite. And I'll invite you over. It's true, too, isn't it? <laughs> so true. Well, we've run out of time, Stephanie. Thank you so much for all of that wonderful advice. Oh, thank you. And and good luck, all parents <laughs> of toddlers. My goodness, they are cute for a reason. And uh, we'll be back next week talking about ideal sleep practices for babies. Thanks again, Steph. I'm Siobhan Hunt. See you then. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, email me at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.